All right, everybody. Man, this is an awesome day. We've got a friend of the house. You've never met him. I have actually traveled with him to Cuba. This is one amazing guy. We're so privileged to have him come and be here with us for our second week of the Kingdom Builder series. Now, this series is really designed to do a couple of things. The first thing it wants to do is it wants to transform you. Kingdom Builders is about your heart capturing God's heart for the world. Secondly, though, it's about in empowering you. It's engaging you to be a part of the solution, right? And one of the big ways that we do that in America is we give. We've been blessed like no other nation on planet Earth. Trust me, I've been in, over, I've been in around 50 countries in my entire life with the, with the United States Air Force and then, in the, and then in ministry. I've traveled all over. I've seen people in all kinds of different situations. Trust me when I say we have been blessed. And Kingdom Builders is about engaging our congregation to do something with radical generosity. The first place that we focus our attention, though, through Kingdom Builders is the backyard of the church. Like, we believe that we aren't supposed to be a church that just goes to the ends of the earth. We're a church that gets to the ends of the earth by stepping on the backyards of our friends. So we need to be a church that makes sure that we're reaching people that are around us. And we want to see every church do that. So we partner with rural churches. We partner with churches that are in the city. You heard one of our, you know, uh, CMN is our church multiplication network kingdom builder partner. And they're with them. We're planting churches around the United States. We just believe that we need to first off reach our mission field in America. All right. So your kingdom builder giving helps to accomplish that. Secondly, though, we are also a part Part of the ends of the earth. So the global missions part, where traditionally when you go to other churches, you hear them talk about missions, they're, they're keeping missionaries in the field. But they're also doing missions projects, like planting churches, digging wells, feeding the hungry, responding to natural disasters. We're, we're doing that same thing uh, to the tune of a lot of money every single year. And we're excited about our Kingdom Builder partners. Lastly, though, which is probably one of the areas I am most excited about when it comes to Kingdom Builders, is this, raising up future Christian leaders. I mean, one of the things that just gets me excited is seeing college students get passionate for Jesus, to see young adults get passionate for Jesus in other countries, pursue the call of ministry in their life, go into missions. I get excited about people that go, Pastor Jeff, I want to take your spot someday. I want, I want a young adult, man, that is passionate for Jesus to take my spot someday. Um, young adults stepping out into the mission field. Teenagers that feel called, called by God, going to Bible school, getting prepared, and then going to places where right now you can't even send a missionary. I mean, I love radical following of Jesus. And guys, we're doing some amazing things and being a part of raising up the next generation. Our missionary that's here today, Danny Izeri. He is all, he's, he's, he feels like two of the boxes. He is a, he's a global, global outreach partner, so he goes to Cuba. That's his focus. But he's in Cuba helping to raise up the next generation through what's called Global University. And, he's, and they're sending these Kendalls into the country that are packed full. Check this out. As a college student, where are the college students in the house? Let me see your hands really quick. <clears throat> all right, check this out. For the price of a Kendall, these students in Cuba are getting all of their textbooks. <clears throat> and we're funding it. We're sending, we're sending like $1,000 per student 
per year to get their degree, and they get a Kindle with all of their textbooks on it so that they can follow the call of God and get a Bible degree in Cuba to accomplish all that they want to do. $1,000 a year, that's $4,000. All your textbooks, everything paid for, that's amazing. How many parents want to send their kids to Cuba for, for, for university? That's what I'm saying. Right, how many college students would rather have that as their debt, right? Okay. All right, come on, but you can't. So we send it, and we're a part of that. And today in the house is one of a radical guy, man. He loves Jesus with all of his heart. Would you give a big, warm, new life welcome at all of our campuses to Danny Izeri? Come on, guys. Thank you, Pastor. Amen. Good morning. It's a joy to be here. So I just thought, what can I do that's different from the last service? So I'm going to, just like a tidbit about Cuba that most people, unless you went to Cuba, wouldn't know. My first trip to Cuba was in 1989. The reason for that is my parents were are originally from Cuba, and they left before the revolution took over. And because of the revolution taking over, they never went back. Thank God I was born and raised here in the United States of America. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. So... Because I'm in an area that I understand that Nebraska, they do a lot of cat, they have a lot of cattle. You guys are looking at me like, did I get misinformation? No. <laughs> so in Cuba, the reason why when I land, and I've, I've gone in and out of Cuba, I've lost count because it's been for 20 years, even though I've been a missionary for 26 years in other countries, but for 20 years I've been going in on an average of like twice a month into Cuba, in and out. And when I land in the airport, I find myself humming this song, I'm glad to be an American, where at least I know I'm free, hallelujah. And then I'll go straight to, I know maybe it's not your favorite, but just any hamburger joint, get a hamburger and a Coke, and I'm like praising God Almighty. It's the simple things of life that we take for granted. Well, in Cuba, if anybody here has relatives that raise cattle, you, you can raise your cattle, but you can't kill them and eat them. And you're like, what? Don't even ask me why. Because when I ask the Cubans, hey, I, I have an American with me. Translate. Explain to him the problem about the cows. He goes, look, I, this is the first thing they always say. I love it. I do it on purpose because they say, we live here and we don't understand it. How do you expect me to explain it to a foreigner? <laughs> For whatever reason, the control, the rules, they can't kill their own cows. You raise your own cows or your cows, but you can't kill them. When it comes time to kill, you've got to take it to the state butcher at the price that they give you. Only one price. No competition. Very low. Follow me? And if your cow gets killed or stolen, you as the owner get fined, a three-month salary fine. So just things, I mean, these are little things that just make no sense whatsoever. So obviously beef is like the forbidden meat in Cuba. So if you ever take Cubans that are visiting from Cuba for the first time to a place where there's steak, and if they feel comfortable enough and not shy, and you, you make them feel like you can order anything you want, I guarantee you nine out of ten of them are going to order steak because they don't get to eat it. So that's just a little extra tidbit about Cuba. Anyways, so 1989, I go to Cuba for the first time in my life because my dad wants us to meet our extended family. And we get there, and it was just like a shocker. I get there and, and meet people for the first time. And I, when I went to the first church service in a country church, very little, and you have to understand that the church had been uh, persecuted for many years. For like 26 years, the, the system systematically tried to get rid of the churches. No more Bibles coming in the country. So literature was like... I mean, if anybody's in Bible college, I, I was in Bible college at the time, was, I was in my last year, and, and it, it brought like holy conviction to me because I had like five Bibles that were just in my little library that I didn't even use. They were just there collecting dust. And so I went to the first church and the pastor, his Bible looked like it was, the pages were about to fall off. 
And then no one in the congregation had a Bible, no one. And then I saw a lady with lined school paper and with yarn holding it. It was about this thick. After service, I approached her and I said, what was that? I noticed the pastor was reading out of John. He goes, well, the pastor allows me to use his Bible on Tuesdays for like three or four hours, and I've been handwriting the Gospel of John, and I'm halfway through, because she was handwriting it so big, the thing was like this thick, and she was only halfway through the Gospel of John. Well, that was one of my first experiences, and when I, when I, when I encountered that, man, I, as soon as I got home, I like shipped my Bibles to some friend in, friends in Miami and said, please, do me a favor, I don't know how you're going to make it happen, but ship those Bibles to Cuba, because I realized that Christian literature was non-existent in Cuba. And that really, like, it just really impacted me. It's so close to the United States, and yet it's a completely different country. So my first relative that we visit in Havana, most of my family's in the country. There's a gentleman here in your church, Dave, that he's gone to where my family lives, like 12 kilometers from where my family is from, a very humble country area. But in the city, I had, I had two uncles and an aunt living in the city. We went to her house. She was a committed communist party follower, and she had the privilege of living in front of the ocean in an apartment. But this is massive apartment building for people that are communist card-holding members, and they got to have these little apartments. And it was still kind of daylight, and we came in bearing gifts, because we wanted to just show our whole family in Cuba. We're meeting them for the first time in our life. We came bearing gifts, and then as we started walking out, all the little windows, you see people, because those were the first trips in 89 that they allowed foreigners to come visit their relatives in Cuba. So everybody was like, they knew you were a foreigner just by the way you were dressed, Trust me, you, they knew. And they were all looking out of the window, and she looked and started, and she goes, if you're coming with those gifts from that imperialistic Yankee nation, you will not, those gifts will not enter my home. Like real loud so that everybody could hear, so she was towing the line. And we were like, what in the world just happened? We were like confused. So we turned around, and we like, and put the gifts, and she goes, come on in. And, she, and then she was all nice, like, come on in. And we went in the house. We fellowship and everything, but we were still, you know, on the inside where there's six of us and we're looking at each other. Then when it got dark, she said, you can go get those gifts, bring them in. <laughs> so we knew, oh, okay, so she's like, this is all about appearances. You know, you got to look like you're with the system and you don't want anything from the north, you know. So that was like our first introduction to Cuba. And then when I saw the people in the church, how committed they were under persecution. My first testimony I ever heard in Cuba was a, a, a person get up and say, you know, I was coming to church today. And I, and I passed by the office of you know, and he went like that. And my grandfather was sitting next to me. It was, I was like in heaven, you know, I'm meeting my grandfather. I said, Grand, Grandpa in Spanish, what does this mean? He goes, the people in authority. So there's like an office in every neighborhood. So the people, I passed by their office, and, and I got in trouble last week because I had my Bible on. This guy had a Bible. I had a Bible under my arm, and I was very, like, bold about it. And so they came and reprimanded me and said, because of your position of prestige, he was a teacher. If you do that again, you know, there's going to be repercussions. So he got up and explained that, and he goes, and I want to thank God that today I was coming to church, and I went a roundabout way where no one could see me. But then I got, this. I remember the words, coraje pentecostal is the word. How do I translate that? Pentecostal fervor or Pentecostal courage. And I went right in front of their office, and I just want to thank God tonight that I don't have a job. <laughs> that was the first testimony I ever heard in Cuba. And I was like... <laughs> I know nothing about sacrifice. I know nothing about commitment. And I'm in Bible college. These guys are putting me to shame, you know. Not that we're looking for that. I'm not, you know, I've always been one of these Christians where I said, like, you know, I use the word of God to my advantage. Like, if somebody throws a rock at me, God, give me aim like you gave David, you know. <laughs> Instead of, like, turning the other cheek. You know, we have a way of manipulating God's word for our benefit, right? You know, maybe it's just me. I don't know. And, um, but... I came back so moved and so challenged, never in my life did I imagine I'd go years back later as a missionary. 
I had been a missionary elsewhere, but in, 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 in the year 2000, I went to go work in Cuba. And I just want to tell you that it changed my life. And I, I saw miracles, uh, something that happened in 89, 90. When I got back, they said there were all these miracles. Well, I, said, I didn't hear about those miracles. I saw persecuted churches. No, but it's happening. And it was true. And by the time I went back again, it was like massive from all denominations. This is what, and I didn't, I'm going to, you guys are going to look at me probably like I, I imagine you are. Um, when I tell you the following, because I think most of us would probably react the same way. We're a little skeptical here in our environment. Well, maybe not in Nebraska. I don't know. You guys might be the exception. But they start telling me, yeah, God's, God's healing people. And the, the, the miracle that he's doing is like filling teeth. And in my mind, see, just like that. Like how you guys are looking at me. And I'm like, yeah, God, God's got better things than to be filling teeth. And he's got better things to do. But I didn't appreciate the context. We don't understand. So in Cuba, they have all these medical people, but they don't have materials. So, especially back then, like people would still go to the dentist in, in the 90s and not have the, what do you call the, the anesthetics? Novocaine. Yeah, and the Novocaine or whatever. You're just like, go ahead, doc, do it. And even with Novocaine, we don't want to go. Imagine like that. You think I'm kidding. This is real, okay? Go ahead, do my, filling my, fill my teeth, do whatever you got to do. And so there was a lot of people with, with uh, decaying teeth and they needed dental work. So I didn't understand that when they told me that. So it's like God knows everything. He knows all the details. And he said, people have been praying here for 26 years wanting me to move. Now watch what I'm going to do in just a, a maybe move of my finger. I don't know. You know, God is so awesome, omnipotent, right? And so all of a sudden, these are the testimonies I started hearing. Yeah, there's a little, a little house church, and they're just worshiping God with the same group because you can't proselytize, you can't go out. The people have to come on their own if they want to come. No one can invite them to come at that time. Okay, things have changed now for the glory of God. And then a person would walk by and testify later that I, was, I had this pain for six months. And I walked by, and I heard people singing songs. And as I walked by, then my pain was gone for the first time in six months. And then I ran in the church like a crazy person. And the deacons were like ready to tackle this person because they ran in and in Spanish saying, Dios me sano, Dios me sano, Dios me sano. And they're like, what in the world, you know? And God healed me, God healed me, God healed me. He said, look, I got two rotted teeth, they're black. Look, and he goes, you don't got rotted teeth, they're white. And he goes, exactly, God healed me. <laughs> and Cubans are pretty boisterous. I'm like the more quieter one. <laughs> okay. And so word of mouth, the next morning in one of the churches, I was sharing in the last church, I didn't tell him this whole testimony, but the next morning as a result, like at 3.30 in the morning, a deacon comes to the church's house and says, to the pastor's house, and says, Pastor, Pastor, get to the church or something. He looks out the window because he lives a block on the same block, and he sees massive people. He thought, oh, somebody got hit by a car. And when he gets over there, he gets to the church, and there's a massive crowd of several hundred. It's a little tiny country church, okay? There's a massive, and, and, and they're like, he says, there's no accident. What's going on? And everybody wants to get in the church. And he gets to the back of the crowd, and he said, excuse me, excuse me. The guy in the back said, I've been waiting here for 30 minutes. Wait your turn, bud. And he goes, I'm the pastor. I got the key. Hey, it's the pastor. He's got the keys. Like the Red Sea. <laughs> They let him through. He opens the church. Everybody comes in. He told me, the pastor said, I had my back for the first time in my life against the back of the church, the wall. Like you have little pulpit, not as big as this, but like maybe half the size. But I had my back with people three inches, and they're still trying to squeeze in, and there's a crowd forming outside. It's like not even four in the morning yet. This is going to cause problems with the authority. So he said, look, I understand you guys have come to get your miracle. Yes, all in unison. And then, but you guys need to accept Jesus first. You accept Jesus in unison. Yes. He says, that's the first time in my life I did a, a prayer of the sinner and everybody accepted Christ all together. And then I said, okay, I'm going to pray for healing now. But when this is done, you guys got to leave. And they all said, yes. He said, they all lied. 
Because when God started moving and people started getting healed and they were like crying and yelling, I mean, it's something like that to hear it. But I, of course, I heard it and I could see the guy, he's crying as he's telling me. It was phenomenal. He said, they wouldn't leave. There's a crowd forming outside and we had to deal with the authorities. So much so that the authority, this started happening in different churches, different than across denominational lines, the body of Christ. It didn't matter what denomination it was. The Baptist, the Methodist, the Presbyterian, everybody was having miracles. The pastors were begging other preachers and lay preachers or ministers that were retired, come preach in my church because I'm having three, four, five, six services a day, every day of the week, not on weekends. So they were like, after one week, they didn't have a voice. And anybody that was willing to stand up, a 12-year-old kid, told the pastor because nobody wanted to do it. He said, I'll preach. 12-year-old kid preached, and God still moved. It was all about willingness and saying, God, I'll step out in faith. I'll do whatever you want me to do. It was awesome. And the test, so I, I started hearing about that. And I was saying, man, I wish I would have been more perceptive the first time I went. But because I didn't see that at all. That was not my experience. Fast forward, because my time's going by quick. Picture, first picture. This is Norlin. This first picture you're going to see is a young man named Norlin. Are you guys seeing it? No? Okay, so that's Norlin, the guy in the middle. He's, this is four years after we met. So you have to understand, I preached to my, our whole family, we're all believers, and all my cousins were shocked, because it was like very macho kind of culture, you know, like most Latin places. So they thought they were going to take us, hey, let's go, we're going to take you out to go meet some chicks, you know, some girls in Spanish, right, you know. And I go, oh, no, we're not into that. And like, oh, okay, not you, what about you? And then they go, hey, I understand one of you being religious, but all five of you, all the five guys, go, hey, we all serve the Lord, you know. And we weren't into all that partying stuff that they were into, you know. So they were just shocked. And our family, we preached the gospel. They were very hard. One person was receptive. Everybody went to church with us, but no one really accepted Christ. And we're talking about, we have about 200 relatives. So it was like very hard. One cousin looked at me and said he was very receptive. I'll never forget it because it impacted my life. He said, Danny, that sounds beautiful. How do you expect me to believe in God when all my life I've been told there is no God? And it hit me. I was born in a pastor's home. All I've known is the gospel. All I've ever experienced is God's grace, love, and mercy. And I was like, man, it just it, it became a burden in my heart for Cuba. A couple years later now, I'm a missionary in Cuba. I meet this young man at a convention. He goes, are you Danny Rosario? I go, yeah. And he goes, two of your uncles go to my church. I go, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, no, I started a little church. And he showed me a little picture. I wish I had it. And it was a very humble in a little house, a little wooden kind of lean-to house. And country people, because my, my folks are country folk. I mean, real country folk. Oh, that's a whole other story. You go, We're going to make a man out of you here. This is how you kill a pig. I'm like, oh, I, I ain't doing that. I stab him right here. I'm like, oh, we went through all that, okay, because they tried to make men out of us, and the gold cut sugar cane. But this young man said, no, I got two of your uncles, Ignacio and Jose. I go, those are my dad's younger brothers. He showed me the picture of the congregation, and there were my two uncles. I was just praising God. <laughs> Here's this 19-year-old kid. He started his first church when he was 17. He was on his second church plant and reached my uncles. I was so moved. I gave him 100 bucks just as a gift, right? And little did I know, because he made like $12 a month, he used that to get married and go on a honeymoon. <laughs> Man, what a deal. You want to go to Cuba now, huh? Get married in Cuba. <laughs> 100 bucks, and it changed his life. And today, Norlin is like the one that I've worked with the longest. He has two church sites. He wants to do like your church and have multiple sites. He's a leader over two provinces of chaplains, like 800 of them. He started a Bible discovery group thing using the chaplaincy network and has over 5,000 groups. About a week, two weeks ago, he sent me pictures. We just baptized 71 people over one weekend. He's like, I'm fired for God. So that's one testimony. Next picture. 
Because this is too, this is, like, time flies by when you're having fun, man. I'm looking at the, you know, okay, this is Aldo, another young man I meet. They go, you got to hear this guy's testimony. My, my unbelieving uncle, but, you know, it's amazing. She goes, oh, Danny, because I know you love God. You got to hear the testimony of God. He doesn't want to accept Christ, but he's telling me, you got to hear this guy's testimony. I'm like, oh, okay, wonderful, yeah. So I meet him at a cafe. Aldo and his mom tell me, Aldo is our only son. He never, you know, he was a good boy. He started going to church a couple in another neighborhood where he had to walk to. He was a guitar student at a music high school. And we were happy that he was a good kid. And when he tried to take us to church multiple times, we never conceded. We never, no way, we're not. And because they were a little bit better off than your average Cuban because the dad owned this, like, looks like a World War II military truck. You're going to see it in a minute. And he, it was for public transportation. He would get money. So what somebody made in a month, he would make easy in a day. So he was well off, and he said, all I did was drink rum and hang out with my buddies every night. The dad told me this testimony later. And so Aldo, as God would have it, one night stopped going to church because he used to help lead worship. And they noticed that, but they were cool. And then he said they noticed his light was on like at 3, 4 in the morning, 2 nights in a row, and they walked in, and he was like in a daze. They didn't know what was going on. They took him to the hospital. I'm giving you the brief version. They diagnosed him with some kind of schizophrenia, and they said it's severe, and if you don't give him shock therapy, this guy could really... I said... Are you kidding me? Like in the movies, like sci-fi, like shock therapy? He goes, yeah, shock therapy. And, and people had warned her, even people from his church, when they found out, don't do it. This is not of God. And then she, she said, I was so stubborn. I was an atheist. I went, took him. And in his first treatment, he like, I don't know how to say, cogio. how do you say that? He kind of coiled up in fetal position. His ribs were fractured in his first shock therapy. By the second, he was already, she noticed he was drooling. And they did, I don't know how many, like six, or the, six of these over a period of like a month and a half. By the time he was done, she said he looked worse. And then they told me, that's it. And he was like, what do you mean that's it? That's it? Yeah, you just got to give him this medication for the rest of his life. She said, you know what, Danny? His mom, that's what it took for me to break down. I fell to my knees. I grabbed my only son. And I told my husband, who's this big burly man, come with me. And he grabbed the son. We never wanted to step foot in that house church. We went to that pastor. And the, the dad is like this huge guy. And the pastor's like a little guy. He's like real little. He said they fell on their knees before him. Pastor, forgive us. Pray for our son. He hadn't slept in days. Like, they would look on there, and even he was on his bed, his eyes were always open. They prayed for him, and that night, they looked in his room, lights were off, and he was sound asleep. And the next morning, the first words out of his mouth in, like, three months, he said, Cristo, Jesus, in Spanish, Jesus. And then he became, and he was, like, normal. And they were like, what happened? So they knew it was a miracle of God. So now they're telling me this is cafe. And because of that, we've been sharing our testimony with everybody that we can of what God's done to our life. They're like brand new believers three months into this, Okay. And they take, they said, you got to come to our house if you're not doing anything tonight. And I didn't have any commitment, so I couldn't lie. I said, okay, I'll go. And I went, and this is what I found. Next picture. This is the garage where he used to put his beloved truck where he makes all his money. They made a chapel out of it. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, and by the way, we're going to eat dinner. And we invited everybody. So when you finish dinner, we want you to greet the congregation. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. These are lay people. They just got saved like three months ago. And so they're so in love with God, and they're so thankful that God saved their only son. Next picture. So about two hours later, I go outside, and there they are, worshiping God. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. So he doesn't care about his truck as much before. He was so tied into, that's my money. He parks it outside. He doesn't care anymore. Next picture. This is his truck taking the people from the congregation back to their neighborhood. You know why I say that? He started evangelizing his neighborhood. He noticed they were all from a Baptist church about a couple miles away. And there's no tra it's very bad transportation in Cuba. He started driving them to their church. And then while they were in their church service, because he wanted to wait to take them back home, just out of love, out of gratitude for God, he started witnessing in that neighborhood, found out that people there didn't go into church, and those are the people that are congregated in his church. 
So what he started doing is he would take the Baptists to their church, the people that he had witnessed to, he'd bring them to his church. Then after their service, they take them back and they pick up the Baptists and bring them back to his. <laughs> I know it's confusing, but I mean, it's something like you can never forget this as long as I live because I was like, only God could do this, all right? This is incredible. Next picture. This is me a couple of years back with 3,000 Kindles in Miami airport. Only God does this. And because I didn't know any better, I was willing to take this stuff away later on and say, oh, I think I could have gotten in real big trouble for what I did. In fact, I didn't know then, so that's in case anyone hears this. I did not know. I truly did not know. And because there was a certain cap on value of what you can take, especially into Cuba. So I surpassed it by multiple, multiple, multiple. We won't get into it. Because <laughs> you do the math for 3,000 Kindles and the value at about 130 bucks a pop. And I was able to take it, and I knew something was up, but by then God said, it's okay, son, I got you. Because I was on the plane, and it took like several hours, a chartered plane back then, special commercial plane going into Cuba, not like, not like an American airliner. And then they have a representative of the airline, like an, a, like an executive flies on every flight. And he came up and whispered in my ear, hey, we got all your Kindles on the plane. Okay. I didn't know it was like a national secret. I'm just... Yeah. <laughs> But then later on, I found out what I was trying to allude to. But by the grace of God, we got them all in. And we're the first group to ever get that many, uh, the first group to get electronic books into Cuba with all of the workbooks and a lot of the textbooks for their whole curriculum. So that was a big deal. And then everybody in the nation found out about the global university in Cuba because they were like, and even the secular schools, the students that are into electronics, they say, hey, man, the, those church believer guys that, that they hate so much, they got electronic. You got it. What about us? You know, in the state, we're the, we're the, like, the electronic students, and we're like the science, you know, computer science students. So that was a great miracle. And that was done because of people like you guys throughout, throughout the United States that gave. Okay? Skip two, two photos forward. One more. This is George. George became our technician by default. The, when they started having trouble a few years with some of the chargers, He's an electrician. They prayed over him. He said, I don't know. We'll see. You open and start fixing him. So Amazon's got a tech, but they don't know it. They, he needs certification and maybe a good salary, but he's from a church. Pray for George. He's fixing on maintaining all those Kindles, man. He's doing an awesome job. Next picture. These are the students at an event, and we asked them on purpose. How many of you, not including the United States, because they all want to go to the land of milk and honey. That's what they think of the U.S., right? And they said, if God calls you to go to another nation, Islamic nation, Asian nation, African nation, and you would be willing to say, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And look, I don't know, I can't see on that, but on a bigger one, you can see how many of them have their hands up. That was their response. It's a majority. And at that point as a missionary, I said, man, the church in Cuba, they're at the next level. They're not just, they used to, they used to chant, Cuba para Cristo, Cuba para Cristo, Cuba for Christ. Now they go, Cuba para Cristo y las naciones. They added, and the nations. Cuba for Christ and the nations. And I said, praise God. Now, now we're at a new level in Cuba. And I want to end with this. Mark 8, 34. Jesus gives a mandate, and he says, Then he called the crowd, the crowd to him, along with his disciples. That's important because some people might say, Oh, that's good for the pastor because he's called the ministry, or maybe some Bible college student, maybe, maybe even the deacons, you know. But he called the crowd and the disciples, meaning the whole Christian community, and gave them these, this mandate, or what I call an imperative, is not an expression of a desire. If you call yourself a follower of Christ then you must listen to what Jesus said. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. There's a lot in there. And I only got a few minutes, so all I'm going to say is this. He calls you to denial, but what does he call, call you to deny? Yourself. It's not in my human nature. 
I joke around a lot about this because my dad was the one that brought to my attention like 20 years ago. He says, we know when you point your finger, there's three pointing at you. So I'm going to point six at me and two at you guys. I'm preaching to me. I don't have it. I haven't obtained this. I'm not an expert at this. It's still a challenge to me every day. What? Because I go through seasons. And when I was younger, I was more on fire for God. I was sold out. I don't care what happened. As I get older and I have kids, now they're in college, you become like more like, I got to provide for my family. I got to do this. And I forget to trust. You guys sang about it. That song, you know, trust in him alone. It's about trust. This is what this verse is about. It's about trust. Do you really trust God? And when he said, take up your cross, it's not like what me, we've created it. We've diminished the meaning of it of saying, oh, it's problems in my life or so-and-so is my cross or this sickness is my cross. That's not what Jesus was talking about. They didn't have those references of the innocent Jesus dying on the cross. They didn't, that hadn't happened yet. And, Jesus, and they didn't know that was going to happen at that point. They didn't want to know. So when Jesus said, you must take up your cross, it only meant one thing back then. That was the instrument, and it didn't look as beautiful as that. It was a blood-covered, the vertical piece was used time after time. And what the prisoner or the executed, the person condemned to execution would carry was the cross piece. He said, take up that cross piece, and to them it only meant one thing. Wow. He's saying we got to be ready to be executed. we got to be ready to die. And Jesus, he didn't mess around. He wasn't like a, a good PR recruiter, give you the French benefits. If you do all this, then you get heaven. No, he just said, you want to follow me? you got to trust in me. So much so that you're willing to say, God, my life is yours, and you know my plans. And we get scared about things. We, we want to control things, and we have our own plans, and what we want to accomplish. And young people, let me tell you this. No one has more best interests at heart for you than the one that you call Lord. No one. Not your parents, not your loved ones, not your spouse. No one. And you can't outgive God with your life, with your resources. And I'm not just talking about your energy, your life, your time spent to things that matter in the economy of God. And there's nothing more noble, nothing more noble than to say, God, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And at the end of the day, you're, you're storing up your treasures in heaven. It's the best investment. It makes logical sense, actually. It's just that it's hard for us because it's a spiritual realm and we don't see things. So all I want to say to everybody here and to myself and remind Danny who's gotten comfortable in his many years of ministry and say, God, go back to the beginning. Trust God with all your heart. Don't worry so much about all your planning. I'm not saying to be irresponsible. There's a balance. What I'm saying is don't get so caught up like the world does and pursuing all the things of this world and trying to be responsible so much. Yeah, be responsible. At the end of the day, don't let it consume your life. Put your trust, everything in God and say, God, I want to do this, I want to do that. But God, not my will, but yours. I give you the steering wheel of my life, my sovereignty, whatever you want me to do. This is what I'm planning to do in college. But if it's not your direction, guide me a different way. God, And if you, I, I give you this. I want to do it, but I want to do it for the right reasons. I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me. And so I want you guys today, even as you give towards kingdom builders, to missions, to local things, but of your life too, God wants you to give your time, of your resources, of your energy, but more importantly, in your heart today, before you leave here, I'm not, you know, don't get too scared. I'm not asking you to say, you know, I want to be a martyr. You know, that doesn't come naturally. What I'm saying is to at least in your heart to be willing to say, God, I know let me get to that place, God, where I'm saying, God, my life is yours. I'm willing to do whatever you want. I will follow you, whatever the cost, and God will bless you. And let me tell the young people that are sitting right here, I see some young people. It wasn't until I dove in head first, because I grew up in church and I always loved God, but sometimes it was kind of boring. But when I dove in head first and said, God, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to follow you, So when God starts speaking to me, my life became a true adventure.
That's when it becomes an adventure, when you give it all. Hopefully, if I'm still alive in another 20 years, and if the Lord has said, you come back and say, man, what you said was right. It made a difference in my life. I do not regret a single moment. I can look back at my youth with contentment because of trying to be. And I'm not perfect. I have a lot of flaws. In fact, it blows my mind. But God has promised me that he will never give up on me. He's going to finish the good work he started in me until he comes. And so with that, I'm going to ask you to stand up, please. We serve an awesome God. And you know what amazes me? The lengths, the lengths that God will go to to reach somebody. But the cool thing is if you get to be the ambassador, or like I say, I get to be the mailman for a lot of God's things, and I end up bringing something, somebody falls to their knees crying, oh, I was praying for this. And I'm like, why? If I wasn't obedient, and God asked me, I was a little bit kind of like, oh, I don't want to do this. But out of obedience, I did it, and I go, God, thank you for letting me, your, letting me be your courier for this blessing for somebody else's life. And what it does is it instills in me like a new desire, new commitment to want to serve God better than I have in the past. God wants to use you. And the best candidates are the ones that think they have too many flaws or I don't know what God's going to do or God, you can't use me. That's exactly what God wants so that you can't rob his glory so that when it does happen, you, you're going to hopefully fall to your knees and raise your hands first and say, God, you're awesome. I don't deserve being a part of this, but thank you for letting me contribute one grain of sand to what just took place. And I've seen that so many times in my life, and I'm just, I'm just humbled. So I just want to encourage every, everybody here. None of us are exempt of being challenged, even if you're the most spiritual person here, way more spiritual than I am. I, I, I would say there's a lot of people that are more developed spiritually even than myself. But none of us are exempt of God challenging us to a new level of commitment to a new level of saying, God, I, I want to make this season intentional. What would you have me do, God? What would you have me deny myself of so that I can further your cause? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this privilege that you've given me today at New Life Church and on all the campuses and anybody watching online. I pray that God, like that one preacher used to say, I used to love it, that I would slip away, be unnoticed. I'm nobody, God but that your name would be glorified, that people's lives would change from this point, that there would be something they could look back and say, you know, that day I made a commitment to God that changed my life. And that, God, that we would be more obedient to you, that we would be sensitive to the voice of your spirit, that we would be willing, that God, to follow you wherever and do whatever, even if it seems ridiculous or we're going to put ourselves, at the end of the day, God, we just want to be obedient. Use us for your honor and glory. And so that when we step into eternity, God, we can know in our heart that God says, Lord, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes, God, but I, 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 I did my best to try to be obedient to you. And we're going to see the fruit of that obedience like, we've never, like we never could imagine. In Jesus' name, be with my brothers and sisters, with this precious congregation, in the name of Jesus. Amen.